This episode of The Happiness Question is brought to you by Jay Schiffman. Jay Schiffman is a public speaker, coach, and host of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. He interviews people with lived experiences on the topics of mental health, substance misuse, and recovery, and drug use and policy to help end stigma and normalize difficult conversations through empathy and vulnerability. Each year, over 125,000 Americans die from overdose and suicide combined. I'm not even talking about the other causes of death related to substance misuse and mental health. Just those two. Those are our friends, our neighbors, our family members. They go to our churches, eat next to us at our favorite restaurants. They talk to us through our favorite podcasts. And these deaths are completely preventable. There are massive system changes that need to happen. But until we can have an honest conversation about these topics, these lives will continue to be lost. That's why Jay produces the Choose Your Struggle podcast. That's why he tells his story. As a guy in long-term recovery who survived two suicide attempts and an overdose, he recognizes his privilege. He's been given a second chance in a country and a world where most people don't even get their first. For him not to use it for something truly meaningful would be a waste of his second chance. That's why he gives up every day to work to end the stigma and ensure that those who need help get the help they deserve, because we're in this together. Check out his podcast, Choose Your Struggle, by listening wherever you find podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Happiness Question. Today's guest is Jeff Raisley, who's got his own charity surrounding Nepal and Mount Everest. But don't go yet. Jeff's story is much different from Sarah's last week. You won't want to miss it. So without further ado, Jeff Raisley. Happiness is free. Happiness is real. You can live a happy life. Trust me, it's real. Happiness like medicine, trust me it can heal So hello friend, listen up, as I tell you this You can be happier, happier You can be happier, happier You can know happiness, happier You can be happier Sadness comes, but there is something greater. The choice is yours. You can choose to rise or stay down. So make a choice to be happy every day. No matter what may come or go, you can be happier. Happier. You can be happier. You can know happiness. You can be happy.
Well, Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you, Camden. Glad to be here. Happy to have you. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Well, I grew up in a small town in northern Indiana, Goshen, Indiana, and I was all set to go off to college when it was time, and I ended up dropping out after two days and just didn't feel like that was what I really wanted to do after having spent my whole long life of 18 years in school. So I went to work in a factory, saved up some money, and then my mom reluctantly drove me to the edge of town. I stuck out my thumb and hitchhiked across the country. But I did end up going back to college uh, after my parents told me if I didn't, they were going to kill me. And I thought, okay, choices, college, death, I'll take college, and ended up (laughs) really loving academics at a serious level, went to the University of Chicago, then went to law school, eventually even went to seminary. So ended up spending a lot of time in the classroom. I've even taught a few college classes, practiced law for 30 years, retired. And I suppose what's really brought us together is that I have written 10 books, uh, several of which are about what I call philanthrotrekking in the Nepal Himalayas. Cool. So what is that exactly? What is philanthrotrekking? Yeah, yes. it, it means a combination of philos, which is Greek for love, and anthropos, philanthropy, means love of humanity. And so I've combined that with trekking. And so I've been to Nepal 14 times and started a foundation over there. So I combined trekking with philanthropy, and I've led and organized many groups of trekkers, and many of which have been involved with the mission of of the foundation I started, which is called the Basa Village Foundation. What exactly does the Basa Village Foundation do? Well, it's concentrated in a remote area of eastern Nepal, which is not on any of the popular trekking trails. So the first time I was there, which was in 2008, my little group of trekkers were only the second group of people from the outside world that had ever visited Basa Village, which was an amazing experience because they were living basically the same way they had for the last 500 years. But anyway, what the foundation does is I develop this relationship with that village, and we have helped to build a school, a hydroelectric system, water system. Our most recent effort was a little health clinic, and we also helped to rebuild the village, uh, which was partially destroyed from two major earthquakes back in 2015. The same earthquakes that Sarah Safari was in when she was trekking Mount Everest in the last episode. So our mission goal is to work with the local people to finance the projects that they would like to bring up their standard of living in terms of education, 
sanitation, healthcare, those sorts of efforts. But all of those projects have been requested by the village, not suggested by us, the outsiders, the funders, donors to the foundation and members. And the reason for that is I think it's very important for this kind of development work really to be primarily in controlled by the people it's supposed to benefit so that we don't develop a kind of a welfare dependency mentality. So the school, the water system, the electrical system, the villagers build it themselves with their own hands and they own it, they run it, and we just provide financial assistance and expertise when it's asked for. It's cool. I was talking to somebody else as well today that happened to be working with foundations that affected the same area about empowering Nepali women. Really? Hmm. You should, you should connect us. Sarah Safari. Yeah. She's really cool. Where did you grow up? Well, like I said, in the small town of Goshen, Indiana. Doesn't seem like there'd be much there in Indiana. (laughs) As far as mountains, there are not. (laughs) I had (laughs) never climbed a mountain or done any sort of high altitude trekking before the first time I went to Nepal back in 1995. And my first experience there was trekking the Mount Everest base camp trail. So your first mountain ever was Mount Everest? I didn't climb it. Listener note, I would highly suggest against climbing Mount Everest as your first ever mountain. The death rate for Mount Everest is about 1.5%. While it doesn't seem like much, that rate would be much higher for someone that has never done that before. So please, choose something small. And thank you for choosing the happiness question. I I just, yeah, with a group, hike the trail to get to the base camp. But that's quite an experience. The base camp is 18,000 feet high. So uh, base camp is higher than any mountain in the continental United States. Okay, yeah, Everest would be a pretty big mountain to climb for your first climb ever. (laughs) Yeah, in fact, I would say 90% of the people who attempt to climb Mount Everest have no business being there because it is (laughs) such a challenge. Uh, Really, I think only elite climbers should be attempting it. And very interesting statistic, for every 10 people that attempt to climb Everest, only one makes it. And for every 100 people who summit Mount Everest, one person dies. And that statistic has, has stood for many years. So it's, it's dangerous. It's not, it's not something that just anybody off the street ought to attempt. So if you didn't have access to mountains in Indiana, how did you get into trekking? Well, it's kind of an odd story, but when I turned 40, my, well, I was manifesting midlife crisis symptoms and I was kind of grumpy and I don't know, just, it was the old song, is that all all there is? It just, I found myself questioning, is this all there is to life? There ought to be more. I suppose I, I wanted to grow up to be a famous rock star or 
statesman instead of just a lawyer with a family in Indianapolis, which seems kind of silly because I really had a great life. But anyway, I came home from the office one day. My wife slapped down this brochure in front of me and said, why don't you go do this? And it was a brochure about trekking the Mount Everest Base Camp Trail. So I did, and then just kept going back. So it's one of those things that was just a complete, un, I mean, completely surprising detour that my life, my life took, and it's all my wife's fault. <laughs> but she, <laughs> she just recognized I needed to get out of my ordinary life, do something completely different, and uh, she was right. It was good therapy. So why combine philanthropy with trekking? Well, I've um, always been philanthropically inclined. When I was a senior in high school, my girlfriend and I organized the first walk for hunger in our hometown. And that really wasn't the first involvement because I was very active in my church. And so through the church, there was always uh, philanthropic mission type efforts to be involved in, but that do, organizing that Walk for Hunger really sort of gave me a sense that not only this is something very valuable and important, but I have some skill, talent in organizing that kind of thing, leading it. And so throughout my life, I had done, been involved in various philanthropic efforts, but I really fell in love with Nepal and especially the, the culture and the people that live up in the high mountains. And they were very good to me in terms of being the guides and the cooks and the porters on these expeditions I started doing. So I really, I just, I wanted to give back. And Nepal is an extremely poor country it's the poorest country outside of Africa. The first time I went there in 95, the average annual income was for a family was a dollar per day. So if you can imagine people were living on less than $400 per year, it's gone up since then, but it really isn't much better. So with a country that's, that's so poor, sparked my desire to do something to help. And because the people that I experienced were just so kind and welcoming. Sir Edmund Hillary described the Sherpa people as the strongest and the kindest people in the world. And I, I had that same reaction. So I thought, okay, these people have welcomed me. They've taken care of me on these treks and mountaineering expeditions, I wanna give back. And then this particular opportunity came up in 2006. I used this company that I hadn't used before. We'll call it an outfitter company that outfits an expedition. And this was a mountaineering expedition, but all the guys that worked as our porters, our cooks and our guides came from this one village, Basa. And that's because the owner of the company, a guy named Niru Rai, grew up in Basa. And although his company was based in Kathmandu, he hired all his guys 
from Bassa. So I got to know these people very well after about three and a half weeks hiking and camping and climbing with them. And at the end of the trek and back in Kathmandu in Nehru's house, he said, in our little village, we have a school that has three grades, first, second, third grade. And we would really like to add a fourth and a fifth grade. And if you could raise or donate $5,000, that would buy all the materials we need to add two classrooms and to pay two teachers for three years. Teacher salaries back then were $40 a month. So I agreed to do it. And then that was the beginning of the Basa Village Foundation. So how do you think philanthropy ties in with happiness? Well, there's a lot of research that shows people are happier when they do good things for other people. In other words, when you do something for somebody else, it increases your level of happiness. And that doesn't mean that you should spend all of your time doing good things for other people because you do have to take care of yourself and you can definitely get burned out on becoming sort of like a doormat. But my own view is that if you live a life where at least a significant portion of it is devoted to helping other people, giving to other people, that kind of generosity increases your own happiness. Plus, it's the old pay it forward. If you do something that makes somebody else happier and it makes you happier, that spreads happiness just uh, a little bit further. And hopefully it's kind of like things going viral on the internet. You do something good for somebody else, they do something good, and then it just spreads out. What did you see differently in the point of view and the happiness and just the way that people are in Nepal than you did in the U.S.? Yeah, there's really a major difference. I had an interesting experience once. I was giving a slideshow about Nepal to this middle school in a very wealthy suburb of Indianapolis. And so after I I gave the slideshow in my talk, we opened it up for Q&A. And one after another of these kids, uh, these teenagers from this wealthy suburb, said things like, the pictures of those kids in Basa, they all look so happy. And yet they don't have anything. And we have all this wealth, we have our fancy cars and our computers and cell phones and all this stuff, and we're not very happy. So that's an example of when if people think that their happiness is based on materialism, like the saying, he who has the most toys when he dies wins. I mean, that's the way a lot of Americans think. It's just more and more and more. In a village like Basa, they don't think that way because there isn't any stuff to get. They grow the food that they eat. They eat what they grow. There's no stores in Basa. When I first went there, they didn't have money. So they concentrate on each other. They have very deep relationships 
every member of the community can recite the genealogy of every other family five generations back because they tell stories about their ancestors and their grandparents and their great-grandparents. And when you don't have radio, TV, cell phone, computer, it's all talk. And so for them, fun is just getting together. They like to sing and dance and talk and look out at these fantastic mountains that they see across this huge river valley that they live by. And it just creates this deeper connection among people. And so they are happier in that sense. And it's been a wonderful experience spending time in that village and in other villages and uh, people like that who are just so much more grounded and more caring about people than they are about things. Do you think what you're doing is going to affect them in a positive way? Are there going to be any possible negative side effects? Yeah, I, I mean, that's something I've worried about from the very beginning of the foundation. And the, the first book I wrote about it, which is called Bringing Progress to Paradise. And I am concerned that the more they enter into the modern world, their values and their culture might change. But the reality is the modern world was coming. When I first went there, there was no road that reached the village. There was no cell phone service. But in the last three years, a road has reached the village. Cell phone service has come to the village. So the modern world was on its way. And what we've tried to do is to let the village join the modern world on its own terms. So the villagers decided they wanted a school. And they decided they wanted running water and they wanted electricity and so forth. So to the extent it changes, at least it's changing on its own terms rather than just outsiders coming in and imposing their ways on this village that has lived the same way for hundreds of years. So what other challenges have you faced in this project? Initially, there was just the challenge of fundraising, but it's funny that the initial raising of $5,000 for the school took more time than any of the other projects since then, and it was the smallest. So the largest amount of money for one project was to rebuild the village after the earthquake. And that was a goal of $40,000. And we raised more than $40,000 in a couple months. And the other projects, the water and electricity, they were each uh, between twenty dollars and $25,000. We raised those within a couple of weeks. So I, I think initially getting any sort of new organization like a foundation off the ground is a challenge but then if what you're doing appeals to people that part of the challenge goes away so after that probably the greatest challenge is actually building things in such a remote area for all the materials that need to come from the outside world like wire for electricity, PVC pipe for the water had to be first bought 
in Kathmandu, but shipped from India or China to Kathmandu and then carried to the village. So that wasn't a challenge I had to face. Thankfully, I didn't have to carry that stuff. But I, I walked with the guys who carried all the equipment for the electrical system. I mean, carried these huge iron pieces to build that system for days. We walked for five days. Luckily, I just had to carry a backpack. But yeah, and, and then building the electrical system the it's on a little river near the village and there's about a 200 foot high cliff right by the river a rock face and they climbed that cliff carrying the wire up over that and then to the village but those people are amazing in their physical ability their strength and their endurance to do that kind of thing what's your latest book about well, the latest book is called You Have to Get Lost Before You Can Be Found. And it's relevant to the topic of happiness because it starts with an explanation of how I was not happy, even when I should have been, because I had a, a great situation being the head of a small law firm that was a successful business. Uh, loving wife. I had two little kids at the time, who, and I loved being a father. But for some reason, I just didn't feel completely fulfilled. And so I was feeling lost. And I found myself by going to Nepal and then finding this whole new part of my life, the trekking and climbing and also the foundation work. But then there's also an actual experience that I describe in the book where I was literally lost on a Himalayan mountain. I got separated from my guide and the rest of our team. And I spent about 12 hours trying to find my way back to our base camp. And uh, the fog was so thick, I could barely see a few feet in front of me and it was a very harrowing experience. And so I was lost. But then when I found our team back in the base camp, what I got from that, and it's kind of that little story is a metaphor for finding meaning within community. Because when I was alone by myself, feeling lost, it was very uncomfortable. I mean, even to the point of feeling panicky. But then when I was with my friends, in our group, in you know, part of a community again, I was found. And I think that's an important point that people should understand about finding a good life, being happy with a community. It's being with your family. It's pretty hard to be happy being a hermit living in a cave. People who are isolated who don't have family, who don't have friends, who aren't involved in a community, it's usually not a happy situation. So that's really the point of that book is in all sorts of different ways to show how being found means finding meaning in community. So what got you started into writing? I've been a writer all my life. When I was a teenager, I wrote bad poetry but I then 
wrote all sorts of different articles, written legal articles, travel articles, philosophical articles, and theological articles. And so eventually, as, my, as I was winding down from practicing law, I had enough time that I could write my first book. And that first book was the one I mentioned, Bringing Progress to Paradise. And then I've been able to put out about one book every year. So what are your other books about then? They're really a wide variety of topics. I've written three books about adventures in Nepal. I've written one book about adventures on islands. I've done solo kayaking and group kayaking expeditions in Pacific and Caribbean islands. So there's a book about that. I wrote a book about a guy who was the golden boy of Goshen, Indiana. He was the greatest athlete who just seemed perfect, straight-A student, and who was drafted in the NBA and ended up becoming a homeless drunk. And what happens to people who are put on pedestal as heroes at a young age and the the pressure that that is and looked into other examples of that, of famous people. I wrote a book, two novels. Uh, I'm working on my third novel right now, but I wrote a humorous one about playing on a really lousy football team, which is based on my experience playing on my college football team, which People Magazine called the worst team in college ball because we hadn't won a game in two years. Another book is a a legal thriller, kind of a John Grisham type book based on a case I had, which there's a mystery, a murder mystery. And so, yeah, wide variety of topics. What particular field of law did you study then? Well, I had a very general practice. I did a, a lot of litigation, but in our firm, we just, whatever our clients needed, we tried to handle their cases. So just about any sort of normal type of legal work, we did it. And why did you leave it? I think doing anything for 30 years is plenty long enough. And I was thankfully financially successful enough. I could afford to quit working full time. And it then freed me up to spend time doing things I'd rather do, like travel and write. So what do you think we can do to be happier? I think we can concentrate more of our life energy on responding to the needs of other people. In other words, just being generous and finding ways to be helpful so that the sense I've already talked about of how giving of yourself increases your happiness quotient. But I also think it's involved with community, being involved in community, having really good, positive personal relationships. And then I think a third component is taking care of yourself. And and I think that's essential too. You should be physically fit. You need to exercise. You need to eat properly. 
in America, we have a terrible obesity problem. We have a terrible addiction problem. For being the wealthiest nation in the history of the world, we're really unhealthy. I mean, our people eat too much, eat, don't eat the right foods, they don't exercise enough. And I think that contributes to unhappiness. So I would say, in, in a way, if you have three pillars here, so the, the, a stool with three legs, I would say what's important to have that stable foundation is to take care of yourself, live well, be healthy, be involved in a community, and be generous and giving. Thank you. Well, Jeff, it's been great having you on the show. How can we find more of you? Well, first of all, thank you, Camden, for having me on the show. It's been nice talking to you. I have a website, which is my full name. So www.jeffrey, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y, Raisley, R-A-S-L-E-Y. And that has links to all my books, to the Vasa Foundation, to connections with trekking in the Himalayas. The company that I work with, Adventure Geotrucks, there's a link to their site on it. So really many of the things we've talked about can be found on my website, jeffreyraisley.com. Perfect. Well, Jeff, we hope that you have a great day. Thank you, Camden. I wish you a good day too. Thanks, Jeff. Okay, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Happiness Question. If you did, please consider reviewing and subscribing to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen. The Happiness Question is hosted, researched, written, and recorded by me, Camden Boyd. Edited by Camden Boyd, our theme song, Happier, was both written and recorded by La Yi, especially for The Happiness Question. Special thanks to today's guest, Jeff Raisley, for joining us on this episode. You can visit Jeff at his website, jeffreyraisley.com. You can find more of us at thehappinessquestion.com and can get in touch with us at contact at thehappinessquestion.com. We hope you have a fantastic day. Bye.